The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. I remember the first time I encountered this very small book in between Judges and 1 Samuel. And as I taught through it, how many times students within my ministry would come up to me and say, this has been so impactful upon my walk. And how I've over the years developed a relationship with this book. I pray, Lord, that my brothers and sisters, those who are here present, those who are watching online, would also be blessed as we consider the redemption story, as we consider that Jesus is our Redeemer, He's our Goel, our kinsman Redeemer, that He has willingly paid the price for our sins and the impact that will have upon us now. In your name we pray. Amen. And so the title is Famine and funerals, famine and funerals. Within the context of of the story of Ruth, famine represents a season, a a length of time of lack. Uh, And and, and probably one of the most difficult things about lack is is that the children of Israel were used to having an abundance, having more than enough. And as we look at the introduction tonight, basically the introduction in the first five verses, there came a time for, what, for whatever reason, I'll consider it a possibility tonight, there came a time where there was, there was not enough. And, and famine comes into our lives. Maybe we don't have enough work. We have some work, but not enough work. Maybe our health isn't what it should be. We experience lack in the area of health. And, and I think, especially coming out of the pandemic, something to be considered is that many of us have lacked community, relationships. So when you think of the word famine, your mind might go to a country in the world right now where they're experiencing famine or drought, famine because of war or disease. Think lack. Funerals. Funerals. In November, in the first part of December, I either attended or officiated over six funerals, which for me means the family comes to the church and we talk about the loss of a loved one. You, you need to know there's a lot of emotion. There's a lot of emotion. There's a lot of power going on. And and, and if there's anything that would equate the amount of emotion that's experienced are the questions. Funerals, they come in and we meet. And there's sadness, there's tears. I have a box of Kleenexes nearby. And one of the first things we say is grieving, mourning, loss is different from one person to the next. I oftentimes describe grief and mourning like the waves of the sea. You know, I'm doing okay. I'm, I'm, I'm dealing with the loss of a loved one or a friend, and then I, I'm doing something, and for a couple of minutes, I forget. I forget. It's what's been on my mind for days, but here I am doing something, I forget, and when I least expected, again, like the wave of a sea, I am hit with the powerful emotion of sadness and grief and mourning. 
If there's one verse that I share with these, those who are suffering loss, it's from the Psalm of David, Psalm 23, where, and for some reason it's in the King James English, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Our takeaway for tonight, again, the first five verses of the book of uh, Ruth, is God's redemptive presence is our hope. When you hear the word redeem, and you will multiple times through the, through the six-week uh, uh, sermon series, when you hear the word redeem, one of the things I want you to think about is being rescued or delivered. God's delivering and rescuing presence is our hope. So that no matter what you or I are going through, he is with us to deliver us, to rescue us. And in that, my friends, is hope. One more thing before I jump into this here, and that is, for many of us, it's important to understand that we are going to bring hope into the life of somebody who's experiencing or has experienced a famine or a funeral or a loss. And that is, I've said multiple times, your presence, your presence. You don't have the answers to the questions, nobody does. Your presence, maybe even in silence, is redemptive. Well, let's go ahead and get into this. In the toughest of times, it's important for you to know that God is near. As a matter of fact, his proven character is our source of comfort. You and I both know we can say at least that he will never abandon us. We trust that he shelters us in our storms. However, our response in light of this truth is that we trust in him, which for me, I don't know about you, for me, is a continual ongoing, it's a journey in so many ways, an ongoing choice to trust in him. This psalm should come up on the, on the screen, Psalm 37, 25, where David says, and, and there was a season when I was unemployed, uh, living in Fallbrook with my wife and small kids, and I don't know about you, but I have this, in, I don't know if it's an infernal or an internal clock, that about one or two o'clock in the morning I wake and all of the challenges, all of the stress are there sitting by my bedside waiting for me, very patiently. And I quote this verse, I have been young and now I'm old, yet I've not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging bread. I've been young, strong, full head of hair, use your imagination. And now I am old, and through the course of my life, I have not seen or witnessed one individual who placed their trust in Jesus begging for bread. This is important to know because hope comes from knowing that God is always present, which he is. I want you to consider these, uh, these verses here, and there were a number. I chiseled them down for your benefit. But from Deuteronomy 31.6, prior to entering the land, 
God says, Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them, for it is the Lord, Yahweh, your God, who goes with you, and he will not leave you or forsake you. I don't know what your famine is. I don't know what your great loss is. But God tells you tonight, I will not leave you, nor will I forsake you. From Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5, the writer says, Keep your life free from, from love of money and be content with what you have. For he said, speaking of Jesus, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And then this is the Amplified Bible. I wanted to include that tonight. I find it very helpful. That same, I will never leave you nor forsake you, is amplified I will never, under any circumstance, desert you, nor give you up, nor leave you without support, nor will I in any degree leave you helpless, nor will I forsake you or let you down or relax my hold on you. And then it wraps up in in, uh, brackets, assuredly not. God is committed to being with you. So let's consider the introduction here. The book of Ruth brings this truth home in the life of a woman named Naomi. We're going to meet her and her husband and her two sons and her two daughters-in-law tonight, just briefly. We're going to meet them briefly. We'll, we'll, we'll learn a lot more about her next, uh, not next week, but the week after. As we will see tonight, she experiences a famine, lack. Then she loses everything. Her husband and her sons all die. Not only do they die, but they do so in a foreign land. And she is left alone. She is left, at least from her perspective, as we conclude tonight, she sees herself as being alone. Not only that, she sees herself as being judged by God. Wrongly, But that's how she feels. In a patriarchal society, this could mean a life of poverty and being vulnerable to exploitation. You know, as I read through this story, we'll talk about how short it is in a minute, but as I read through this story, when you take Ruth's life, or Naomi's life, excuse me, but when you look at at Naomi's life and you hold it up within the culture and the society of the day, she's not unlike Job. I mentioned a patriarchal society. Her loss is maybe even weightier than Job's loss. For you see, she's beyond the years of bearing children. She's in another country. And as far as she can tell, she's by her, a widow by herself. In a culture where she had no voice, listen to what I'm about to say. In a culture where she had no voice, God heard her cry. In hopeless circumstance, God came to rescue her, obviously through circumstance. Our story from the very beginning to the ending is 85 verses. You can read it in a sitting. It's about common people living an agrarian life, farmers and and herders. I want you to think hardworking folks who are connected to the land, sunburned. I mean, like really sunburned people. 
with callous hands and perspiration-stained clothes. I, he, he just, he, he, if we had been there we would, we, and we had a, an opportunity to interact with these people, we would have seen a people that were, that were hardened in a good way. People who worked really, really hard. And not only did they work really, really hard, but they worked closely together. This is, this is Bethlehem that we're talking about. And not only did they work together, but I suspect that the majority of them were related in some way. And even as I'm saying that, some of you are thinking about Thanksgiving and some of the relatives that you're not so excited about seeing from time to time. But this is the life that we're describing. Very, very close-knit. Not many secrets. I want you to think that they work six days a week from the time the sun comes up till the time the sun goes down, and they work, as I said, together. The book of Ruth is a story of contrasts, famine associated with judgment, as well as the harvest connected to God's blessing. The book, book opens with three tragic deaths and closes with the birth of a son. There's grieving, even bitterness over loss and joy for Naomi's redemption. This is a love story. It's a love story between a man and a woman. And one of the most fascinating things about the book is that it's written from a woman's perspective. As you're sitting here, I want you to maybe lean over to the person next to you and say, Tell, tell them the name of the other book in the Bible that's named after a woman. Come on, go ahead. Anybody say Esther? Okay, okay. Tell me another book, it's in the Old Testament, named after a Gentile. Ruth is a Gentile. She's a Moabite. Do you know another book in the Old Testament? Come on, you guys were pretty confident a minute ago. You think? What do you think? Job, Job, the book of Job. Ruth is a Gentile who is woven in by God, who's woven into the lineage of David. In the same way that you and I are woven into the family of God. In the same way that you and I have been redeemed not by Boaz, by Jesus. Ruth, an outsider, is brought into David's lineage. Listen to this. As was Rahab. Remember Ahab from Jericho? As was Tamar, the mother of Perez. All of whom Matthew includes in the genealogy of Christ. And as we sit here for a moment, I want you to see God opening his arms up wide to welcome all people in. And if you and I are to follow his example, you and I too not only open up our arms but our hearts to all those who are outside a Moabite, all those who are different than us to bring them in. Her story reminds us that our redemption is found in our Redeemer. I'm speaking to a well-taught church. Our Redeemer is Jesus. 
The words redeem, redeemer, and redemption are used 23 times. Boaz is a type of Jesus, one who is, and I find this very interesting, in order to be a redeemer, you had to be able, that is, you had to have the financial resources, the capacity, you had to be able, but you also had to be willing. And when it came to our redemption, only Jesus was able, but if you're sitting here tonight, I want you to know that he was willing. He was willing to redeem you. He was willing to pay the price for our sin. And sometimes when you sit down and you consider your life, I want you to see your value based on what God was willing to pay for you. Regardless of what your backstory is, my friends. I remember from Romans, Paul writes, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus both rescues his, through his death, he rescues us from the penalty of sin, that is, he died on the cross for our sins, and from the power of sin. Elizabeth Elliot said, of one thing I am perfectly sure, God's story never ends with ashes. And as we go through the book of Ruth, I think you will see that truth there. The book of Ruth highlights, we're almost there, but the book of Ruth highlights kindness. Ruth will show kindness to Naomi as Boaz will show kindness to these two widows, but it is God's kindness. It is God's kindness that flows from one to the other. The Hebrew word is hesed, a loyalty to God and to others. It is a covenant love. God shows kindness to the two widows, one embittered over loss, the other outside of the covenant with Israel. Ruth's faith is seen in her loyalty to her mother-in-law. Boaz, make no mistake about it, he is an older man, but he is a man of character. Within the community, remember I was talking about a tight-knit community that everybody knew he, he is looked up to. As a matter of fact, in Solomon's temple, as you would... Not that you could do that, but if we were to be able to go there, one of the huge bronze pillars was named Boaz. The key to Boaz's character is that he takes God's covenant or law to heart. He's one of those men who's no nonsense. If he tells you something, he will do it. He doesn't play games with you. He doesn't manipulate you. Boaz is a straight shooter. At least that's what we would say. He doesn't, he doesn't hide anything. He's not manipulative. When he tells Ruth he will redeem her, he means it. You know, one of the things that, as I was going through the study, that I was thinking about the church, is interesting to me that when the first deacons, when the first servants of the church were appointed in the book of Acts, it was to serve the table of widows. Leadership within that first church wasn't a title or a position. It was to serve widows. The historical background is found in verse 1, the days when the judges ruled. It is easy to romanticize about thinking of people like Samson, you know, the big strong guy. You know, as a matter of fact, a couple of weeks ago when I was teaching, I made reference about going to the gym and you all laughed. And 
I've been wondering about that ever since. You know, like, it was like, like, why were they laughing so much? But you think about Samson, right? The strong man whose life ultimately was a tragedy. You could think about Gideon. How about Deborah, the judge that God would raise up? But the days of the judges, when the judges ruled, were historically some of Israel's darkest days. Some would say they rep- represented 400 years of lawlessness, of anarchy. As a matter of fact, commentary on the book of Judges is provided with the very last verse in Judges 21:25. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. For the most part, any reference to God's law is gone. But as we begin our study here, there is hope because God will never leave or forsake his people. Let's look at a season of loss for a nation. A season of loss for a nation. So in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The big picture... The big picture is of a nation lost at sea without a rudder. It's it's given to the wind and the currents. It it, it has no control where it's going. That's what's going on in Israel now spiritually. People are, are, are making major decisions in their lives without any reference to God's law. Now, when, when you hear God's law, I don't know what you think, but I think God's wisdom imparted to a people. Not just any people, a unique people. A people who were delivered from Egypt, sustained for 40 years, and brought into the land of promise. These are not just any people. People who had God's law given to them, had God's prophets given to them, had God's leadership given to them, and they find themselves lost, without bearing, without a north star. Do you know that you are God's people? Do you know that you are unique and special? Not only because he paid the price to redeem you, but he has taken his law and he has inscribed it on your heart through the presence of the Holy Spirit. You are unique. You are different. Not only has he inscribed his word or his will upon your heart, he has given you the power to obey. You are not a people who are lost. You are not a people who have lost your bearing. You are not like Israel at this point in time. You are a people who are making your way, following your Redeemer, who has promised to be with you continually. Verse 1, it says there was a famine in the land. I want you to think of scarcity. Scarcity. I, I don't know if you've seen those photos recently. I, I see them from time to time. And, and, and well, I, I, I met this lady a, a couple of, uh, last year, Pastor Ray asked me to, um, to help get her, her daughter's testimony uh, recorded. Actually, Noah was there, and um, he helped with the media department. And when I first met her, it was at a Sunday night Bible study. And, and she had hung around afterward, and we were talking, and and she said, you know, Danny, I, of, of all things, right? She goes, um, I came here from the Ukraine. We, we're strong Christians. Uh, we're strong Christians, and, 
And, and I just saw miracle after miracle. My, my, my mom would, would go into town with just enough money for the bus fare, and she would get into town, and, and she would go into the store, and, and she, you know, she would, like, you know, get a small piece of bread, and, and, and then she would reach into her purse, and there would be enough money for the bread, but she knew she didn't have it when she went into the store, and then she would go to another place, and, you know, to, to buy maybe a, a piece of fruit, and again, the money, and so just really miraculous stories. And she said, finally, I had opportunity through some family members to come to, to the United States, and we, we came to Northern California. And she said, we, one of my relatives said, would you, would you like to accompany me to, to go to the grocery store? And she said, sure. And she says, we came into this grocery store, and she goes, I've never seen this in my entire life. She goes, I saw rows and rows of different kinds of bread. And, and different kinds of, of food. And she goes, I fell on my knees in the middle of the store and I raised my hands to heaven and I worshiped God because of, of having so much food available. There was famine in the land. There were empty shelves. I don't, I don't know what it does to you, but sometimes when I see pictures of empty shelves here, I, I, I feel a little bothered. I mean, do you? I feel like this isn't natural. This isn't normal. There was scarcity. Listen. There was scarcity in the land of promise. Remember it was described? The land flowing with milk and honey. The land that I will give you. Remember, before the people coming into the land, God says, I'm going to give you homes you didn't build. I'm going to give you vineyards you didn't plant. I'm going to give you fields. I'm going to give it to you because the land is my land and now I'm giving it to you. And if you have any, any footing or grounding in the book of Genesis, this is Eden-like. We'll look at this in a moment, but it's almost as though God was giving them land, God partnered with them, and yet there's scarcity. Do you see how odd this is, how unusual this is? There was a famine in the land, and there was lack. My friend, as you sit here tonight, is your heart experiencing scarcity? Is the ground hard? Is it difficult for you? Not only is it interesting that Elimelech goes to Moab, it's likely that the entire country of Israel, from one end to the other, the famine, had a grip on the land. Let's look at a, a season of loss for a family. Nope, a season of loss for a nation. I lost my place. Scarcity, lack was being experienced in Israel. Fields of grain, vineyards, and olive grove, groves were decimated. Livestock as well. Sheep, goats, cattle were dead or dying. For Israel, the weather report served as a spiritual EKG. Listen to God's word, conditional promise to the people of Israel in Deuteronomy 11, verse 13. 
And if you will indeed obey my commandments that I command you today, to love the Lord your God and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul, he will give the rain for your land in its season, the early rain and the latter rain, that you may gather in your grain and your wine and your oil. And he will give you your grass in your fields for your livestock. And you shall eat and be full. And then verse 16, the condition. Take care, be careful, lest your heart be deceived and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you and he will shut up the heavens so that there will be no rain and the land will yield no fruit and you will perish quickly off the good land that the Lord gives to you. I think it's important for us to know where these words were spoken. As a matter of fact, as you consider the book of Deuteronomy in any capacity, Moses has brought the people. Again, this is the conclusion of 40 years, a generation in the, in, through the wilderness. And they themselves are on the plateau looking to the west, to the land of promise. They are on an elevated plateau looking across the Jordan Valley, and they see the Judean hills before them, they are in Moab. A generation is buried in the wilderness. As a matter of fact, the leader who's speaking these words will not enter the land. He will not lead them into the land. Listen, why? Because of disobedience. And God says, I will give this land to you. I will send the rain. You will never have to question as to whether the rain will come unless you turn your hearts to other gods unless you disobey. Remember the generation that was buried in the wilderness? Disobedience. Remember that Moses misrepresented to God by striking the rock instead of speaking to the rock? They knew in their hearts and their minds that if we obey God, the rain will come and water the land. One more thought on this. As we go through the book of Ruth, we will find a young woman. We will find a young woman who's been widowed, we will find a young woman who is an outsider, a Gentile, who will place her trust in the God of Israel and will experience the blessing of redemption. She will experience the blessing of redemption. She will observe the law of gleaning. We'll talk about that. She will observe the law of deliver at marriage. She will faithfully honor her mother-in-law, Naomi, and she will experience blessing. My friends, as we sit here tonight, is obedience no less important for you and for I? Let me ask you, is obedience to the God who has redeemed us to the God who has brought us into a spiritual kingdom. Remember Paul says in Colossians, for he has translated or transferred you out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his precious son. The one who's changed your name is asking us simply to follow him in obedience. The writer introduces irony when he says Bethlehem. They come from Bethlehem, the village of Bethlehem, which literally means house of bread. The fields of grain around the city of David are currently non-existent. Regarding the man, he went to sojourn in the land of Moab. Or 
He intended to go as long as the famine existed, and then he planned to return when the famine was over. He, his wife, and his two sons were refugees. They were refugees. They were displaced people. They moved some 70 miles from Bethlehem down into the Jordan Valley, up the other side to to the fertile plains of Moab, and they were refugees. They looked different than everybody else there. They spoke a little different. They worshiped a different God. There was something about them that just, they didn't fit in. As a matter of fact, the term of the day was resident alien. They were there. They had no rights. They could easily be taken advantage of. They were fleeing for their lives. And God protects them in Moab. Now, a season of loss for a family. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife was Naomi. And the names of their two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. Notice the difference in terminology. They went to sojourn there. The man took his family to sojourn there. Then over a period of time, they remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. Sadness. Dead, death in the land, and death visits a family. And she was left with her two sons. Verse 4. These took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived about 10 years, and both Malon and Kilion died, so that the woman, notice the writers writers focusing in on Naomi here, the woman, he's kind of leaving Ruth and Orpah off to the side. We'll pick up with that, not next week, but the week after. So that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. I want you to notice something, because the writers... The writer's building a case for David's uh, lineage. And so he names names, as any genealogy does. He says, notice that the writer carefully lists family members' names. Elimelech, his wife Naomi, and their two sons, Malon and Kilion. A genealogy is being provided to support David's right to the throne. So obviously the story was written many years after, uh, after it took place. Next, he builds a connection to the land. They were Ephrathites. Uh, we believe that this was a clan that was associated with the area around Bethlehem, the land that was given to the tribe of Judah. The writer makes a point to say that they remained in the land, that they initially fled the famine, but ended up staying in the land indefinitely. I don't know if you do this. I think it's human nature. There's something, a habit that we do that's good, it's beneficial. Last March, I was roughhousing with my grandson, and he's a pretty rough kid. And, uh, you know, your brain tells you you can do it, but your body tells you your brain was lying. That's been my experience. So I'm roughhousing with him, and my my back goes out, and so I go to see a physical therapist, and it's almost like he wanted to punish me. He said, Danny, do you do planks? And I go, what? Do you do planks? I'm going to show you how to do planks. And he had me try to do one. Remember, my back was sore, and I'm, I'm like shaking like this. And I go, good Lord, who would do this to themselves? You know, this is like, it's like punishing yourself. 
So in the morning when I get up, my little bald head gets all kind of shiny when I'm doing my planks, but it's supposed to help my back. But, but, but we have these things that we know we're supposed to do, but when I'm laying in bed, sometimes I'm going, I'm going to skip the planks today. And then a day turns into two days, into three days. I know you don't have this experience, and I hope none of you are physical therapists, but, but listen, it's human nature to, to not do what we should probably do. And then over time, we find ourselves where we don't want to be. He went to Moab. I find no fault with Elimelech. He went to, to Moab to save his life, his family's life. And he ended up staying there longer, and he died. My friends, where are you tonight? Danny, I'm in the land of promise, right on. Danny, I'm in Moab. You know, the pandemic came. I got out of fellowship. It's cool online. I like it online, but I'm just not around brothers and sisters anymore. And if I were to be honest with you, Danny, tonight, I'm in Moab. Well, I come into this building. I, I, I sit during worship, but I stopped singing a long time ago. I come to the Bible study and, and I agree with everything that's being said. But I quit applying it to my life a long time ago. It seems like it was only yesterday, but now that you're bringing it up, it's been a really, really long time. My friends, you have a Redeemer who desires for you to experience the former and the latter reign of the Spirit in your life. You have a redeemer who doesn't punish you, who doesn't say, well, that's what you get. You have a redeemer who says, come to me, all who are heavy, heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I got that wrong. All who are burdened and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He didn't say, come to me, and I will scold you. He doesn't say, come to me, and I'll make you feel bad. He says, come to me, and I will give you rest. No motives are revealed in our text. In fact, in verse 3 tells us that Elimelech dies in Moab, and the time that he was there is omitted. Almost done. Hang with me. So now Naomi is a widow, but she has two sons left. And there's a bit of tension. I, I don't know that it's intentional, but it creates a tension with me as I read through it many years ago. Tension is introduced in verse 4 when we read that these, the sons, took or married Moabite wives. Let's, let's talk about this for a moment. Again, Deuteronomy, this time verse 7. You shall not intermarry with them. We'll talk about who them are in a moment. Giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters to your sons. Talking about not intermarrying, not, not going outside into these other, these other people groups and bringing them in marriage to your families. It's important to know that the word them here is specific to the inhabitants of the land or the seven nations of Cana. You've heard about them, the ites, the parasites, all the ites. 
So could it be that it was okay for these two sons to marry Moabite women because they weren't of the land of Canaan? I'm not going to answer that question. I'll let you think about that. There's also Deuteronomy 23. We're spending a lot of time in Deuteronomy tonight. 23 verse 3. No Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord, the assembly of the Lord, even to the tenth generation. We're going to be told why here in a minute. None of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever because they did not meet you with bread and with water on the way when you came out of Egypt and because they hired against you Balaam, the son of Beor, from uh, Pethor of Mesopotamia to curse you. Some would say this is a good reason, Danny, why we're told that they shouldn't have married Moabite women. But really what the terminology here suggests is that Moabites and Ammonites would not be allowed to come into the tabernacle. So the sons, after their dad dies, marry foreign women. Anything here, another thing here, as we will see, Ruth eventually trusts in Naomi's God and leaves her gods for the people and the people of Moab behind. So Naomi loses her husband, and after approximately 10 years, both sons die. Keep in mind that after a decade of marriage and there being no offspring, it suggests that the challenge of Moab remains with the family. In conclusion, Naomi wasn't responsible for the drought. She followed her husband to Moab. But at some point, she's alone left alone, at least from her perspective, in a foreign country. What she can't see, what she can't see beyond the loss of her husband, what she can't see, and maybe we shouldn't expect her to see beyond the loss of her sons, beyond the loss of there being no grandchildren, what she can't see is that God's redemption, listen, that God's redemption is right in front of her. God's redemption is with her in the person of Ruth. What she can't see is that the promise of redemption is in her daughter-in-law. Through this young lady will become blessing and joy. As we close here, really close this time, think about this. If you've experienced a famine or a funeral, God's redemption is near. In the midst of a famine, Jesus has promised to be with you. In the midst of great loss, he has promised to console and to comfort you. By way of application this week, I would ask you to identify a famine in your life. If it's applicable, this week, as, as, as we go through the balance of this week into the weekend, Identify a season of lack in your life, a famine. Secondly, again, application, a funeral or the loss in your life. For each one of us, this may be very different. The famine may be different than the funeral. But as we do so, think about this. When we look at the lack or the scarcity, when we look at the severe loss, I want you to look around and see if God would identify for you a Ruth a friend, a source of life, 
a source of encouragement. We close with Psalm 126.5. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. Let me read that again as we conclude. Those who sow or plant in tears. The word is emphatic here. They shall reap or harvest with shouts of joy. You know, as the band, our worship team uh, returns to the platform, I want to remind you that that this is a time that we will observe communion during the, the balance of our time together and that the elements are here. This is also a time when I would invite those of you who, who would come forward uh, to, to, to be available to pray with, uh, with others, to come and, and make your way here to the front of the platform as well and, and remain here. And, and those of you who have come to our Bible study tonight, thank you for coming. But I'd ask you to also come, just come forward for prayer and to receive the elements. I'm, I'm going to go ahead and pray. So Father, tonight we thank you that you are with us in our famines that you are with us in our loss, and that you provide redemption, sometimes from the most, Lord, just from a direction, from an individual, just from time with you, Lord, we can experience redemption in the storm, that we are not Israel in the time of the judges, that we are a blessed people now, that you call us to obey, you call us to see that within the pages of scripture you provide the story of redemption and that our redeemer his name is Jesus who died on the cross for our sins and that by trusting and believing in him we can have eternal life thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel if you haven't already please subscribe for weekly messages Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our midweek revive service held Wednesday evenings. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.